I'm going to pray for us before we get started today. Father, thank you that you have redeemed us with the blood of your Son. Lord, I thank you that you've given us the great gift of fellowship, Father, the church family of the body of Christ. Thank you that you have knit us all together, Lord, that we share a bond that is beyond anything this earth knows, Lord, a bond that is deep and eternal. I thank you that you have caused us to gather together in unity, Lord, that we can come and celebrate what your Son has done, for which we are eternally grateful, Lord. We thank you that you gave what was most precious to you, Father, for sinners like us. And so may we give our lives back to you, Father, as a reasonable sacrifice, Lord. Thank you for the offering of this church, Lord, the generosity of our servants and those who give. God, and I ask that you would use those resources to glorify yourself, Father, to grow your kingdom for your glory. Thank you for your word, God, that we are able to gather multiple times weekly, Father, to be taught from your word, to be completely renewed by what you have to say for us, God. And I ask now that as we look into your word, Father, you would speak to each individual here, Lord, that the teaching of your word would be paramount to our lives as believers, God. We love your word, we love your truth, and we love you. So I ask that you'd reveal yourself to us in new ways, God, as we open your word. I ask that you'd bless Pastor Rob, Father, that you would speak powerfully through him, that your spirit would move in this place, Lord, that you would capture our minds and our hearts and our attention now as we seek to hear from you and to remember what your son has done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. You know, it's weeks like this that make me so glad that we're, we're of another kingdom and we serve another king, the glorious king and the king above all other kings, King Jesus. And I love this country. I love my country. I thank God for it. I'm very discouraged and concerned about the state of our country right now. Uh, but, you know, I realize that this is not my home, ultimately. My citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. Amen. And that's the kingdom that we're living for. Amen? Amen? And so I love that text that Pastor Joe referenced about Jesus being in the boat. I thought, why have I not even thought of that this whole time? There's so many opportunities I've had to go there. And I was like, dang, Pastor Joe, you beat me to it. So, <laughs> anyways, man, what a great, great truth. You know, Jesus is in control, always. Jesus is in control. You know what he told the disciples when they got into the boat? We're going over to the other side. And all they could think is, we're going under. We're under. <laughs> That's why Jesus said, you have little faith, because he said they were going over to the other side. You know what, folks? We're going to make it. We're going to make it to the other side. Amen. Okay? Because of Jesus. And for no other reason than that. So we just continue to trust him, to rest in him, and to praise him, to live for him. Amen? All right. Well, in our study of Colossians, last week we talked about knowing God and living for Him. Remember that? We talked about how incredibly important it is to know Him, to know Him accurately, and to live for Him. To understand what His will is generally, to understand how that works its way out into our lives practically, specifically. 
And I'll just reread that text for you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that's where we were last week. And that is so very important, especially in the time that we live. There are so many conflicting, competing ideas about who God is, what God is like, where we can go to find the truth of God, how that shapes and affects our lives. And it's so very important that we have the right understanding of God. And that was Paul's prayer for the Christians there in Colossae. That was his prayer, that you would know God that you would know Him correctly, that you would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that it would affect the way that you live, and that you would continue to grow in the knowledge of God. And so with that prayer, Paul begins to actually launch out into some very deep, some very profound truth about who God is in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just say, I hope that you increase in knowledge and I'll have a good day. He says, this is my prayer for you, so get ready. You know, I'm praying this for you, and this is my prayer for us because we're going into some very deep territory today, very deep. And so my prayer is that God truly would increase our knowledge, that He would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of who He is, especially in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Christology is so important. Who is Jesus really? What does the Bible actually teach about him? Because again, there are so many ideas out there about who Jesus is. And so we want to know the true truth. Amen? We want to go to the source that has revealed Christ to us. And we want to understand from that as much as we possibly can about him because it is intensely practical. It saves our lives, it changes our lives, and it carries us through this life. And so that's where Paul is going to take them. He's going to give them a very deep and rich understanding of who Jesus is. And he's going to point to the supremacy, the all-sufficiency of Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, that's the theme of this book. Jesus, the all-sufficient one. He's all that we need. He's more than enough. He is indeed the preeminent one. And that's the key of the text that we are in today. In verse 18, it says that in all things he may have the preeminence. And that, that's exactly what our text is dealing with today, that Jesus is preeminent in all things. Preeminence, what does that word even mean? That's not a word that we probably use very often. <clears throat> it means surpassing all others, surpassing worth, superiority, transcendence, prominence, supremacy. He is the supreme one. He is at the center of it all. He is all glorious. He is majestic. It is all about Him. It is all through Him. It is all to Him. It is all for Him. Jesus at the center of it all. He is the supreme one, the preeminent one, the Son of God. And that's where Paul is going to take them because, you know, there was a lot of false teaching in this church. This is a letter written to an actual church in real time. And it is historical. These were real people. And there were some real misunderstandings about who Jesus was in that church because there were false teachers that crept in that began to pervert and distort the truth of who Jesus was. Remember that there were issues with philosophy, worldly philosophy that crept into the church, worldly wisdom devoid of any truth of God. 
There was legalism that had crept into the church. More rules, more regulations. There isn't that freedom that comes through the knowledge of Christ, but instead there's more rules and rituals attached to it. As if to say Jesus is not enough, Jesus is a good starting point, but then it's my ability to keep all of these other rules as well, and that is absolutely erroneous. There was asceticism in the church. That was um, afflicting oneself, punishing or beating yourself, because Christ's suffering wasn't enough. So in order to have God's blessing in my life, I need to make myself suffer. And you know, people have actually done that and do that to this very day. And that is so unfortunate because that is not the way it was supposed to be. Mysticism crept into the church. You know, more knowledge, deeper knowledge, hidden knowledge, crazy experiences, always looking for something more supernatural, more spectacular, always pursuing experiences. All of this combined kind of made up what was the Colossian heresy. And so Paul, the way that he went about setting things straight was by pointing to Jesus, to who Jesus really was, and how Jesus is more than enough in all of these areas. You know, what appears to be happening in the text in front of us today, verses 15 through 20, that's where we're going to be, is that there were issues specifically regarding mysticism and Gnosticism, as I just mentioned, you know, a need for some kind of secret knowledge, extra knowledge, spectacular, spiritual, supernatural experiences. And that kind of stuff had really crept into the church. And so there were ideas like, you know, God is, is God overall, but there were an unending amount of spirit beings that descended from God. I mean, endless, countless, you know, billions on billions. And Somewhere along the line, one of those emanations, one of those spirit beings was responsible for creation itself. Now, initially in the beginning, those spirit beings were very pure. They were very righteous and holy, but through time they began to become corrupt. And one of those corrupt spirit beings is responsible for creation itself, which is why creation is the way that it is. The fallen state of creation, the wickedness, everything that, that is bound up in that. That was kind of one of, the, one of the teachings. Also along with that, God shared his divinity. God shared his divine nature with all of these spirit beings, uh, angels, if you will. And so Colossians actually talks about the worship of angels that was going on there. So, you know, those kinds of things are what I think Paul is alluding to in this text. Those things are absolutely false. That is not true. And we're going to see in this text how Paul clears that up by pointing to the truth of Jesus and who he is. So Paul addresses these issues by holding forth Christ and all his splendor. By holding forth Christ and all his splendor. And that's my desire today. That's my heart. That's my hope. I want to hold forth Christ to you. Because in him is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In, in him is all purpose and satisfaction. In him is life and life more abundantly. He is the one that we need. He is the one that we must run to, to feast upon his faithfulness, to live upon his goodness. And so this is a very theological text. It's full of doctrine. This is some of the weightiest theology in a very concise form, four or five verses here. So I need you to put on your Bible hats today, okay, folks? I need you to try to hang with me because we're going deep, all right? And so uh, with that, let's go ahead 
And uh, let's just read the text together. Why don't you stand with me? Give you, a, give you an opportunity to stretch your legs out there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. <clears throat> Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture before us. Thank you that you have delivered it to us, have preserved it for us. And here we are with a copy of the word of God right in front of us. So I pray that by your spirit, O oh God, our eyes and our hearts would be open and ready for the truth. God, would you please have mercy on me. Would you speak through me for the benefit, for the good of your people here today? We trust you. We look to you. and We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, point number one. Again, the, the title of this message, Jesus the Preeminent One. Point number one, Jesus is preeminent in Revelation. Jesus is preeminent in revelation. No one reveals the Father like the Son. Nobody reveals the Father to us like the Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, the first part there, says that He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the Bible teaches that God is spirit. It says that throughout the Scriptures, and that as such, He is invisible, God is invisible. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Same book, 1 Timothy 6.16, it says, God who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So God is spirit, God is invisible, no man has ever seen him but one man, and that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to give us a vision of this God. Jesus came to give us eyes to see that we could behold God by looking upon him. In John chapter 1 verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus has declared the Father to us. That word actually means explained. It's the same word that we use with the type of uh, teaching that, that we do here. Expository teaching, to explain the Bible verse by verse. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to exposit the Father to us, to explain the Father to us. And how did, we, how did he do that? 
Well, John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus said, you want to know what God is like? You want to see the Father? Look at me. Look right at me, and I'll show you. Now, we know he's not talking about physical appearance, okay? We know that. Jesus wasn't the, the, he wasn't the one to, to show us God physically. As we said, God is spirit. And just a, a quick note about Jesus' appearance in general. You know, he, wasn't, he didn't have a halo around his head everywhere that he went. Most people, by looking at Jesus, you wouldn't know that there was anything special about him. Consider the night that he was betrayed. Remember how Judas betrayed him, and he, he, he actually went, and how did he betray Jesus? Anybody remember? With a kiss. That was the sign. After three years, all of the, the controversy, the miracles, the healings, everything that went on with Jesus in public, they still needed somebody to identify him. They couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Out of 12 guys, 11 guys, Judas absent. And so that tells us a little something. Jesus was a very ordinary, normal-looking guy in appearance. But he showed the Father to us in a very different way. He was the very essence of God, the very character of God, the very nature of God. And so we need to understand something of God to really understand the weight of this statement. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is heavy. He came to reflect to us the very nature of God, the very character, the very essence of God. So if you would, for just a moment, I want to do a little crash course on theology proper. Let's talk a little bit about God himself, God the Father's character, God's nature. So that will help us kind of uh, frame this a little bit and understand, kind of feel the gravity of this that Jesus represents God in this way. So first, one of the things that we know about God is that He's eternal, the eternality of God. God exists outside of time and space. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but from eternity past to eternity future, God. God was, God is, God will always be. This speaks some, something to the self-existence of God. God exists in and of himself. You could say God is the uncaused cause. He has life in himself, and he needs nothing from anybody else. We talk about that a lot around here. We, we make a big deal about the fact that God doesn't need us. And the reason why we do that is because in the day and age that we live in, we, we tend to, and it can, it can be very bold and brazen, or it can be very subtle, but we tend to act like God is needy, that God was lonely, and that God created us so that he could finally have some fellowship because he was so bored by himself, right? And so that would, what that's essentially saying is, is that God needs us to be who he is. You know, we think of God as a creator. We think of him as a ruler. Well, he needs creation to rule over to be who he is, if that is the case. But he's so much more than that. He's outside of all of that. He has life in himself, and he doesn't need to go anywhere else. See, we need to go outside of ourselves for companionship, for food, for water, for truth. We have to go outside of ourselves for life. But God, not so. God exists eternally. He is self-existent, 
a fancy way of saying that for my note takers, aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. That's what that, that term is. God is infinite. He is limitless. He is without boundary in both time and space. God is immense, the immensity of God. He is uncontainable, and He is not restricted to any locality at any point in time. God is all-knowing. He has all knowledge. He never learns anything because He already knows everything, and He sees all time equally vividly. That means five minutes ago and 5,000 years ago is just as clear in God's mind. And that's, you know, for us, you know, we, we tend to forget as time passes, right? And so this is a scary thing if you don't know God as your Father savingly. Because, you know, we, we do things, we, we sin, we, you know, fall short. And uh, as time goes on, we kind of forget about those things and life goes on. But God doesn't, ever. Everything that we've ever done, every single offense that we've ever committed, God, this is fresh in His mind as if it happened two minutes ago. And that's why it's so very important that we know God as our Father and be forgiven of our sin because He accounts for all of it. He doesn't forget any of it. So that's, that's God. He never forgets. He never learns. He sees all things equally vividly. He's all-knowing. He's never changing. He does not change with time. He does not grow, and He is always consistent in and of Himself by His own nature and attributes. Sometimes we'll see somebody do something, blow up, lose their temper, and we'll be like, man, that's kind of out of character for that person. Not so with God. He is totally consistent, never changing. God is ever-present. There's nowhere that He is not. God is all-powerful. He has all might. He is totally free and able to do His own will, period. Nothing can stop Him. Nothing can stay His hand. God has simplicity. That's another, another kind of fancy. This is kind of a trip. God can't be divided. What He has, He is completely and totally. He's not one-third light, one-third love, one-third holiness. He is all of that at once. Sometimes, you know, we act out of anger. Sometimes we act out of compassion. Sometimes we act out of jealousy, right? God is not that way. What He has, He is always and completely. I mean, this is so far beyond our ability to comprehend. And I'm just, I haven't even scratched the surface. We could go on and on and on about these kinds of things. These are what are called incommunicable uh, attributes. These are attributes that God does not share with us. We cannot reflect these things or, or have these things be true of ourselves. So that is why God always said that he did not want an image made of him. You ever wondered that? Why is it that God said, you'll have no graven image of me? Because nothing could truly capture who God is and what God is like. If you could, if you could make an image of God and capture one aspect of it, maybe the, the one aspect of God, whatever that is, you have all of these other things that are left out, that are lost. So God said, don't bring me down to that level. Don't try to make me into something lesser. Don't make me less than I am. So God rejected the idea of graven images, like all of the other idolatry and false, false gods and, and pagan religions and stuff like that. God he stood out above all of that. He's the invisible God. He's so much more. Does it, you tracking with me? So when you consider that, you begin to understand the weight 
of what it means when it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the only one that is truly qualified to represent the Father. Only Jesus as the second person of the Trinity can do that. I debated whether I wanted to get into this right now, but I'm, I'm going to. I think it's necessary. The Trinity of God. We are Trinitarian. We believe that God is one. One God. We don't believe in a, a plurality of gods. The Bible is crystal clear about this from cover to cover. One God. But He exists eternally in three persons. Three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. One in essence three in persons. If that doesn't make any sense to you, that's, that's a good thing because I mean, none of us get it. Our puny, finite minds cannot, cannot truly comprehend God in all His fullness. If we could, that would scare me. That would frighten me. If I could understand God or match intellect with God, but God's outside of my ability to truly grasp. But the Bible teaches that before there was any created thing, God existed. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they were totally satisfied in and of themselves. Perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect unity, perfect satisfaction. That was the triune God. Now, we don't believe in three gods, okay? We're, we're not tritheist. We don't believe in a plurality of gods. We don't believe it's one God that changed forms, and believe it or not, that's, that's somewhat of a, that's not totally uncommon uh, in Christianity for people to hold that. It's called modalism, that God basically revealed himself in three different modes. God became, he was the Father, became the Son, became the Spirit. We, we don't believe that, we reject that. But we believe in the Trinity, and that is how Jesus was able God the Son from eternity past took on flesh, was born into this world with a human nature, took on the confines, the restrictions, the limitations of a human nature, and He represented God the Father to us. He communicated God the Father to us perfectly. You guys with me? Is it heavy enough for you? Enough heavy lifting going on here? And so it's important to know that as we begin to work our way further into this text. How is it that Jesus can be all of this because he is the son, the second person of the triune Godhead, one in essence with the Father? They have distinction in roles. You know, God, the Father, didn't die on the cross. Jesus did. There is distinction in roles at the same time. They all share the same prerogatives, they share the same attributes. They all forgive sin in the Scripture. They all receive worship in the Scripture, and so on and so forth. So we see how they're very distinct. They do very different things. God created all things. God set forth the plan of redemption. He sent His Son, Jesus, to die and to accomplish this redemption for us. And the Holy Spirit indwells us, regenerates us, activates, if you will, that plan of redemption within us so we understand how we relate to the Trinity uh, with each distinct person, right? I think it's a little easier for us to wrap our minds around it when we consider it that way. That's called the economic trinity. That's the, that's the, the, the term for that, that, that reality. And so Jesus is the second person of the triune God. He was born into this world, became truly man. We'll talk more about that a little later. And Paul said that he is the image of the invisible God. So 
The word there for image, it's icon, from which we get the English word icon, and it means be like. It's a mirror-like representation, referring to what is very close in resemblance, like a high-definition projection. Jesus has come to absolutely reflect to us the nature, the heart, the will of God the Father. Hebrews 1.3, which by the way, Hebrews verses 1 through 4, I think, is a parallel text here to Colossians 1.15 through 20. It's amazing. But it says that he is the radiance. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Like the sun, that ra- uh, the heat, the light that radiates from the sun, such as Christ. He is the light that radiates from the Father. That word nature there, it's being or essence. The sun is the perfect imprint, the exact representation of the nature and essence of God in time and space. Jesus is perfectly qualified to represent God as the image of his nature and essence because he and the Father are one. Because he and the Father are one. And just before we get too far away from it, the point I'm, I'm making here is that Jesus is the preeminent one in revelation of God. He is, no one reveals the Father to us like Jesus. And Jesus regularly made these kinds of claims. Jesus regularly made claims to deity, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. I'll, uh, I'll read a couple to you. John chapter 10, verse 27 Jesus is explaining his power, his sovereignty, and salvation. He says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says this, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Well, he's talking to some people here, and and what is their response to that? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Listen to this. The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, Jesus' enemies knew exactly what he was claiming. Jesus' enemies knew exactly who he was claiming to be. It's amazing how many of Jesus' so-called followers today would say something altogether different than what Jesus said of himself. In Mark chapter 2, we know the story. There was a, Jesus was healing people, and you couldn't hardly get to him, so he was in this house. Some guys literally lifted the, lifted the tiles off a house and lowered their friend down into the house so that he could get to the front of the line and It says this, when Jesus saw their faith, Mark chapter 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and they were reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise and take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. 
So they said, wait a second, only God can forgive sins. What are you, who do you think you are? What are you doing? And Jesus said, look, when I say that your, sin, your sins are forgiven and then you rise up and walk, you're going to know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. That is a claim of deity. Jesus is God in the flesh, in their midst. And then, of course, one of the biggest ones in John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? But Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. Again, they knew what Jesus was claiming. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That is a, a statement of, of eternal existence. I have always existed, will always exist. That is the name of God. That is how God identified himself to Moses in Exodus. And they knew this and they wanted to kill him for it. So make no mistake, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the second person of the Trinity, the only one that is truly qualified to represent the Father. He is God in the flesh. So the point, we need not look anywhere else. If you want to know God, if you want to know God, you need look no further than Jesus Christ, His Son. The truth of God is found in Him. The wisdom of God is found in Him. The will of God, the heart of God is found in Christ Jesus. He is the ultimate revelation of who God is. And people go everywhere else. Christians even, so-called. Oftentimes they're looking at all these crazy books, these extra gospels, all of these other places, high and low, listening to everyone else's opinions. But they don't go straight to the source. They don't go to the Bible. They don't look to Jesus himself for the truth. But Jesus is that. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by who? His Son. His Son. God has spoken to us by His Son. God has revealed Himself to us perfectly through His Son. We need look no further than Him. We look to Jesus. Amen? He's supreme. He's preeminent. And Revelation. We're going to move a little quicker through these uh, following points. Point number two, Jesus is preeminent over creation. Jesus is central to everything, all created things. It's all for Jesus. It's all about Jesus, from him and to him. So the first thing we're going to see is the rank of his supremacy. Verse 15b, the latter part of 15 says, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, this word firstborn is at the center of much misunderstanding, and understandably so, right? Jesus is the firstborn of God. Many have taken this to mean that Jesus is the first of God's created order, that God created Jesus, his son, the second person of the Trinity, and that Jesus became then the agent of all created things after that. Now, this, this notion, this false teaching about Jesus, first arose in the early 300s, the Arian controversy, the early 4th century. Arius was the guy that made this 
popular. And this same teaching lives on today, though it was thrown out as a heresy then, lives on today through Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. They believe that Jesus is one of God's creation. He's a created being. He's lesser than God. He is not God himself. Well, there was something called the Nicene Creed that was written in, uh, in the early 300s. There was a council that took place in 325 A.D. I mean, think about that. That's a long time ago, folks. 325 A.D., and they were dealing with this very issue. And so they came together, and they looked to the Scriptures, and they ironed this out regarding Jesus. And this is what they said in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, catch that, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father, through Him all things were made. So they, they ironed that out all the way back then. No, no, no. This is what the Bible says about Jesus. Jesus is very God from very God, of the same essence. And he is not some lesser being, some created being who is lower in God's created order. No. The word actually means this idea of the firstborn is superiority and rank. That is to say he's the heir of all things. And this was very typical in this day and age when this was written. The firstborn into the family had all the rights, all the privileges of the inheritance. He had rank. He had preeminence, right? And that's the idea here. It's not actually talking chronologically. It's talking of rank, of Jesus as the one to whom God has bestowed all authority. You understand? You following with me? And so that's the idea here. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn. He ranks over all things. He is supreme. He is preeminent. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, again, it says, whom he has appointed, God has appointed Jesus as heir, heir of all things. And so that is the truth. You know, I had a, as a new believer, I had a, a Mormon show up on my, my front door and we, we began to get into some of these things, and he was, uh, you know, making this very point about Jesus. And he actually referenced this verse <clears throat> about the firstborn. And so I explained to him what I just explained to you. And this guy had been, you know, doing this for 50, 60 years, and he really knew his stuff. And he was taken aback. It, it kind of threw him off, and he didn't know what to say to that. And, you know, I, I said, that's right. Don't come to this guy's door, all right? See, this is what's going to happen. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But, yeah, that's the truth, man. That's the, <clears throat> that's, that's the deal. And, and so he, and he ranks in supremacy. He is preeminent in ranking. But what is the reach? What is the reach of his supremacy? Verses 16 through 17, all things created in heaven and earth. He is supreme over all of that. Verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. 
So for by him all things were created. Jesus is the agent of creation, it says here clearly. <clears throat> Most fascinating to me about that is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says that God created. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus is the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is the agent of creation. We're told that in the Old Testament, Genesis 1, God created, but we're told again here in the New Testament that Jesus created. Why? Because they are one. Jesus, the Son, and the Father, they are one. And He is the agent of creation. He is the Word of God. Jesus is called the Word of God because He is the perfect communication, explanation to us of who the Father is. He's the agent of creation. All things were made through Him. And I love this, in Him was life. Jesus had life in himself. He shared that with the Father. And the life of the light of men was in him. Now, Hebrews 1, verse 2, it says that his son Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So the scriptures are, are very clear to this end. Jesus is the agent of creation. He is one with the Father and through him all things were created. It says, Jesus created all things visible and invisible. So all things seen and unseen, and the physical and the spiritual, Jesus created. He created that. It goes on to say that he created thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Those are actually rankings of angels, angelic or spiritual forces. Jesus created it all. Jesus is over that. You need to understand, Jesus is not somehow an equal of Satan. Or, you know, it's not like they're opposed to one another and they're on the same level. We often kind of treat it that way, maybe subtly, but somehow I think we bring Jesus down. No, He is over all. He is the creator of all things. Demons knew who Jesus was and they were terrified of Him, right? We see that in the Gospels. When Jesus would step on the scene and someone was demon-possessed, what would happen? The demon would cry out and say, I know who you are, Son of God. Have you come here to torment me before my time? I mean, that's some eerie stuff. But they knew who Jesus was, and they knew that Jesus was greater because Jesus actually was the creator of all things. And it says that all things were created for him. All things were created for Jesus. Jesus is the purpose, folks. That might, that might you know, bust our bubbles a little bit, you know? We, we tend to think that we're the center of it all. You know, we tend to think that, that everything exists for us, right? We're preeminent. That's how we tend to act and live, is it not? But the Bible is crystal clear. Jesus is the main thing. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus is supreme, transcendent, superior. And it's all about Him and it's all for Him. It is all for Him. I'll talk more about that a little later. It says that Jesus is before all things. Before all things existed, Jesus. Jesus was already there. He pre-existed all of that. Again, and He ranks over all of those things. And then this, it says, in Him all things consist. I love that. Jesus holds all things together. Just soak that in for a minute. 
Jesus created all things, and in him all things hold together. Can I just tell you something? I know this for a fact. Jesus is holding me together. Jesus is holding my life together. I praise him for that. I know what would happen real fast, I mean real fast, if I were to get away from him. I praise God that he is holding me and he will never let go. I praise God that I am in his hand and nobody can snatch me out. Nobody, nothing. I need him. Don't you need him? We need him. Praise God that we have him. Praise God that he's holding us and he's holding us together. When everything seems like it's falling apart, I mean, when, when everything is falling apart, let's just be real. When everything's falling apart, Jesus has us. We're in his hand. He's holding us together. And he's going to keep holding us, and he's going to see us to the very end. In him, all things consist. In him, all things are held together. Praise him for that. Praise him. So Jesus is preeminent as the revelation of the Father, Jesus is preeminent in creation. All created things in heaven and on earth. They, are, they exist by Him and for Him. They are held together by Him. Number three, Jesus is preeminent over the church. Jesus is preeminent over the church. Only Jesus is the Lord of the church. Verse 18, And He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So Jesus is the head and we're the body, the church. Now we understand this illustration and the implication. We, we are a number of people, but we come together and we are one in Christ. We are a family, we are a community, we are the body, if you will. We are Jesus' hands and feet, right? But Jesus is the head. Jesus is the head. He is the authority of the church. He is the ruler of the church. Now, this has been a raging battle for a long time. The body is not the head of the church. We're not the head either, okay? Just get that straight. You know, we, we ain't running anything, okay? Jesus is the head of the church, the Lord of the church. The pastor is not the head of the church, okay, folks? I am not the one. I didn't die for you, all right? Jesus did wasn't my blood that purchased you or forgave you of your sins. It was Jesus. He is the head. Pragmatism is not the head of the church. That is, if it, if it works, then do it. You know? If it gets results, then do it. See, that's not how this works. Pragmatism is not the head or the Lord of the church. Jesus is. So we are here to worship Him, to serve Him, to do His will, and to bring Him glory to lift him on high. And we do what Jesus tells us to do. Amen? This is his church. We exist for him. Jesus is the beginning. He is the origin and the source of the church. He said that upon this rock, I will build whose church? My church, his church. What was that rock? It was the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And hell will not prevail against that church because it's his church, bought with his blood. Jesus, we're told here, is the firstborn from the dead. That is, the word is um, prototokos in the Greek, and that is, he is the first. The, he is the prototype, if you will. Jesus died, and he rose again in glory. 
And so we know that we too, who have trusted in Christ, when we die, we have this confidence. What confidence do we have? We know that when we die, we have the confidence that we will rise again in glory like Jesus did, because he was the firstborn. He was the first. He died and he rose again, vindicated by the Father, raised into the newness of life. He is the firstborn from the dead, and we too shall follow him in the resurrection. It says that he may have preeminence in all things, first place. So Jesus is to be worshipped as such. Jesus is to be worshipped as such in the church. You know what a spirit-filled church looks like? A Christ-centered church. That's what a spirit-filled church looks like. A church that makes much of Jesus. A church that exists to bless His name. To love Him and to walk with Him. The church is God's gift to His Son. Did you know that? Christians, we as the body of Christ... God redeemed us through His Son so that we could glorify Jesus uniquely because He's gracious and He's merciful and He deserves to be worshipped as such. So it takes a fallen and redeemed humanity to give Him glory for that. And that's what God is doing in the world. God is saving men and women so that we can worship and praise Jesus because He's worthy of it. It's all about Him. It's always been about Him. Before anything was ever created in God's mind and heart, it was for His Son, Jesus. And that is what God is doing in the world today, my friends. It's all about Jesus. He's preeminent in the church. He is God's beloved Son. He is the Son of the Father's love. And God has purposed to give Him a people that will bless him and worship him forever. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus loves his bride. Jesus loves his bride, and he's going to present his bride spotless, faultless to the Father in glory. All right, last point. Jesus is preeminent in reconciliation. Only Jesus restores us to the Father. He is at the center of salvation. Jesus has first place. He is supreme in reconciliation and salvation. The word reconciliation, it means the restoration of friendly relations. It is the restoring of warring parties. You know, we were enemies of God. Enemies of God. And Jesus is uniquely qualified to restore us to Him, to make reconciliation between us and God. So look at verse 19 and 20. It says, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. So notice there in verse 19, it says, The fullness, it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. That is, the fullness of deity. The fullness of God's nature. The fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus Christ. Now, I'll get more into that in a second, but first off, I, I mentioned this earlier on in the message that this is probably getting to a, her, a heresy that was going on in the Colossian church that, that there were all of these spirit beings that, that came from God, these emanations, and that God shared His deity with all of them. 
right? So what Paul appears to be doing here is saying, no, no, there is one. There was only one that came from the Father, the man Christ Jesus, and God has only shared his divine nature with this one. In him dwells all the fullness of the deity of God. That's heavy. That is very heavy. And what we're talking about here, folks, and another fancy word for you, is the hypostatic union of Christ, the dual nature of Christ, that Jesus was truly God, nothing less than, you understand? God. But he was also truly human. When he was born of a virgin, he entered from outside of time and space into time and space as flesh and blood, as a baby through the virgin birth. And in that baby dwelt the fullness of deity. And so he took on an additional nature. Now, he did not relinquish his nature as God. He didn't become something less than God. If you can cease to be anything less than God at any point, you never were God. So he maintained his nature as God, but he took on a human nature, a second nature, the dual nature of Christ. And that is so very important. The purpose of this was so that he could actually live in our place, the life that we could not live. Jesus lived the life of perfection to God's law that we broke a long time ago and have broke countless times since. Jesus, as truly man, truly human, lived the perfection, lived perfection in our place. So he was truly our representative. He had to be. He had to represent us as man. You know, sinful man cannot pay for the sins of sinful men. That's kind of the problem with us thinking that we can be good enough. You know, if we say, well, I've done more good than I have bad, first off, you're, you're sadly deceived and mistaken. There's no, no way. Because we're wretched to the core. But the sinful works of man cannot pay for the sinful works of man. You understand that? And so there had to be there had to be the Holy One. There had to be the sinless, perfect One who walked perfectly in God's ways, and that was Jesus. Only He could stand in the place of sinful men. But He also had to be God, because only a sacrifice of infinite worth could satisfy the wrath of an infinitely holy God. You ever wonder why hell is eternal? Because it's a payment that we can never pay in full. The wrath of an infinitely holy, almighty God. That's what we have to stand before one day if you don't know Christ. That's what awaits us. That's what awaits those who don't know Jesus. So Jesus, as the perfect man, lived the perfect life, but as God in the flesh was a sacrifice of infinite worth, and only God could withstand the wrath of God in the way that he did at the cross. So Jesus, as truly God and truly man, was the only one uniquely qualified to live the perfect life in our stead as God and to die in our place as man, as representatives for mankind. The God-man, Jesus Christ. In Him dwelt the fullness of God. In Him dwelt the fullness of deity. Truly man, truly God. That is why Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says that there is salvation in no other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus was the only one that could do that, folks. 
Jesus is the only one that could reconcile us to the Father through the cross. There on the cross, as Jesus died, our sins were on him. God's wrath, God's holy indignation was being poured out. He was crushing his son to death for our sin. And that sin was judged there on the cross, and it was washed away so that God could then extend grace and mercy. How can a holy God, how can a holy God just wink at sin? How can he say, you know what, I see that, but I'm not going to do anything about it? He cannot. Remember what I said, he's consistent with his own nature, and he is perfectly holy, and he can do no less than judge sin. But remember, at the same time, he's perfectly love and perfectly merciful. And so God made a way. God paid the price himself. God provided for himself a sacrifice, his son, Jesus Christ, who would die in our stead. If you trust Christ, if you call upon his name, if you say, Lord Jesus, I need you because I have sinned and I have I have transgressed God's law. I have fallen so short of the glory of God, and I know this. Jesus, please forgive me. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sin and that you rose again from the grave. And I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to follow you. You will be saved. God will have mercy on you through his Son, Jesus Christ. And that reconciliation comes only through the Son. And that's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus because He's the image of the invisible God, because He and the Father are one, because He is supreme in revelation, supreme in creation, supreme over the church, and supreme in salvation. He's the one, folks. He's the one. So let's worship Him, praise Him, run to Him. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's the one, and there is no other. And if you reject that, how are you going to escape God's wrath? But praise God, we don't have to be under God's wrath. We can be under God's love, God's infinite mercy, God's infinite kindness and graciousness. Amen? And so if you don't know that, you can know that today. You can experience the preeminence of Christ in your life. And that is, that is my prayer for, for all of us. If you don't know Him, you can know Him. And if you know Him, then worship Him, praise Him. So let's pray. We love you, Jesus. We love you. We know that you are the preeminent one. Surpassing worth, surpassing value. There is none that compare. Who have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And there's none on this earth I desire beside you. Nothing, no one could be held up next to you. You are above it all. You always have been, you always will be. May we give our lives to you wholly, God. May you have every part of us. Lord, you are transcendent. You are preeminent. May you be that in our lives. May we live lives like that. Help us, Lord, for we are weak, prone to wander, and we do struggle in this life. But you are faithful. You're holding us in your hand. 
You'll never let us go, and you're always holding us together. Thank you, Jesus, that we have that, that hope, that promise. We're yours, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.